27. And uh, I made it. Um, because I was staying on the border, my, my, I think my watch changed times in the middle of the night for some reason, and I was an hour off. But I left my glasses in the hotel room. <laughs> so these are my second glasses. So I say all that to say, if I can't see, I do apologize. <laughs> it's my old prescription, but that's all right. So glad to have you with us. I want to uh, just mention also Feed and Seed coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, those of you who are not familiar with Feed and Seed, it's just an opportunity to grab a couple of families, have lunch together, have a meal together. It could be Saturday night, it could be Sunday after church. You could go to a restaurant, go to McDonald's, or you could come to each other's houses. But don't wait for someone to invite you. You take the initiative and just grab somebody you don't know very well, say, hey, let's, let's get together. And, uh, and then post your pictures on the Facebook page for the church. And, uh, and see who's having the most fun. <laughs> so we'll do that. Try to get somebody you don't normally eat with, fellowship with. It's a chance to mix up the church a bit. All right, this morning I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew 4. <clears throat> Matthew 4. We're going to continue with the account of our Lord's temptation, which was in preparation for his public ministry. I want to stress again that while this passage does have a great deal of application for Christian living, it was originally designed to tell us how the Spirit of God prepared our Savior, our High Priest, so that he could represent us in every possible way. The Bible tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, maybe you've read those words before and wondered about them because you found yourself asking, how is it possible for Jesus of Nazareth in his short earthly life to experience every aspect of of temptation that is common to our humanity? Uh, that's a question that has crossed my mind in the past. How could he possibly identify with every temptation I'm ever having? Uh, when you read this passage in Hebrews 4.15, it can confuse us a little bit. Well, the fact is that he did not experience temptation from within because he had no sin nature that answered to external temptations. But nevertheless, the Scripture does assure us that in every way, or when it comes to every category of sin, he was tempted. And he was actually tempted further than any human being has ever been tempted in any given category. So, How do I know that? Well, that can safely be said because he never gave in. When people give in, they never know the extremity of a temptation. So the only person who could experience temptation to its fullest degree would be the temptation of the person who did not stop short by giving in. Jesus never gave in. And so he experienced temptation 
to the ultimate degree. Let's read now the account of three of these temptations in particular, beginning in Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Shortly after this episode, according to Matthew, our Lord began to preach what is called the gospel of the kingdom. I pointed out before that the largest sample of preaching on the gospel of the kingdom is given in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to 7, or the chapters that immediately follow what we have just read. In that sermon, preached shortly after these temptations, our Lord warned that no one can be the slave of two masters simultaneously. And he was explicitly referring to two specific things when he said, you cannot be a slave for God and also for mammon or material things or wealth. And then the Lord uh, dealt with those issues by exposing how someone can be a slave to wealth or to material things. On the one hand, someone can do that by, he said, laying up treasures on earth or being concerned about having far more than you need in life. Uh, Someone like that Uh, exposes that they are oriented towards material things. But on the other hand, the Lord said that this can also be done by being anxious if we don't have sufficiency in life. And then he said, well, don't be anxious for your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is the obligations associated with that kingdom, then all of these things will be added unto you. Now that is what the Lord preached. And when he preached it live, he was addressing a crowd that undoubtedly was comprised primarily of peasants. 
who'd been living at subsistence level for all of their lives. It's to these people that he said, don't be anxious. Or perhaps they wondered on what experiential basis he could say such a thing to them, never knowing that just before this, he himself had been tempted far more than any of them would ever be tempted when it came to this issue of basic necessities. Now, of course, that is certainly the case with us today. None of us have ever been tested as he was in this area. None of us within the will of God have been subjected to 40 days without food. None of us have probably gone for days without food, and dare I say it, few of us have gone for hours without food, except when we're asleep. Well, the lesson, of course, that came out of that first temptation was that all of our material necessities are to be provided in subjection to the Word of God. We must not take things into our own hands and violate the appointed will of God for us, even in order to feed ourselves. And the Lord Jesus passed this test perfectly. But now we come to the second temptation recorded in verses 5 to 7, and this is what I want to look at this morning. This one took place on what verse 5 calls the pinnacle of the temple. If you go to Jerusalem today and you visit the archaeological remains of the old temple precincts, they've dug up stones that were torn down when the Romans destroyed it in AD 70, and they've uncovered what would have been the pinnacle of the temple. Now, they know that because of the inscription on the stone, which says that this was the place of the trumpeting. In other words, when a trumpeter announced a Jewish event, uh, he would climb to the pinnacle or the highest point of the temple complex in order to be heard, and they found the stone that was marked for trumpeting at that height. This stone was originally located at the southeast corner of the temple overlooking the Kidron Valley, so the Lord would have been standing at a dizzying height surveying the panoramic view down below. It's about a 130-meter drop into the valley. The wind drafts would have whipped his garments. His hair would have been blowing all over the place. His face, no doubt, was gaunt from many days of not eating. He was perhaps deep in concentration, looking out into the valley or the temple complex below, until, whether through an actual appearance or simply a mental suggestion, Satan seduced him with the temptation as it's recorded here. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now, I want to call your attention to the fact that, once again, this temptation is grounded in the recognition that Jesus is the Son of God. Just like in the previous temptation, the if is not questioning that, but it could just as easily and rightly be translated as since. In other words, because of what God the Father said about him at the baptism, this is my beloved Son, because this is the truth, all right, then hurl yourself down from this great height. Now, 
Have you ever read that and wondered what the actual temptation is in saying that? Is there any seduction in that suggestion? Throw yourself off the temple. Where's the appeal in that? What would be the advantage? You know, I've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon in Arizona with no fence, a drop of 1,600 meters down to the Colorado River down there. And if someone said to me, throw yourself off, believe me, I'm not tempted at all to do so. Okay? I have no desire, there's no benefit for me to do that unless I want to prove that I can fly, which I will quickly not believe once I jump. (laughs) So what was the temptation for Jesus in this situation? Well, some scholars have suggested that it was daylight, perhaps uh, late morning or evening, and, and the temple precincts would have been crowded with the very people who... He wanted to accept him as their Messiah. So this gave him the opportunity of being borne up by angels in their presence, and as a result, people would hail him as their supernaturally given deliverer. That's what a number of commentators say. But of course, all of that is speculation. There's no hint of that at all in the text. I think that the only way of really understanding the appeal of this temptation and its application is actually to lay uh, the second temptation side by side next to the first temptation and compare them. The first temptation was the seduction to act independently of God, to take things into your own hands and deal with the extremity of a situation outside the circle of God's provided will. Well, the second temptation is just the opposite. It's the appeal to prove that professed dependence on God. You remember Jesus responded to the first temptation by saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, He lives by every direction that comes from God, even when it comes to his daily food. He depends entirely on the Lord. Okay, this is now a temptation that drives such a profession to its ultimate extreme. It's as if Satan was saying to him, now here's a test that I bet you're not willing to undergo when it comes to your professed dependence on God. I mean, if you're... If you're truly living by faith, as you say you are, all right, throw yourself off in absolute dependence into the hands of God. Put yourself in a position where there's no hope of survival whatsoever unless God does something miraculous to intervene. And then we'll see if all your talk about dependence on God can bear the acid test. Throw yourself down. Let's see if you really depend on God for deliverance. Now, what is particularly subtle about this is in the next verse when Satan actually suggests Old Testament Scripture to support this action. You can almost hear it in his voice. He says, hey, check this out. You say you trust every word proceeding from God's mouth. Well, guess what? It is written. He shall give his angels charge over you, 
And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now the passage he quotes from is Psalm 91, and I want you to turn there so we can examine this a little bit more closely. We're going to turn to three Old Testament passages this morning, beginning with this one. And the first thing I want you to look at is the heading that you may have in your Bible for this psalm. You will need your Bible. What's the heading? Now, we don't all have the same Bible from the same publisher, obviously, so the headings might differ a little bit. But the Bible I have has this heading, Psalm 91, Security of the One Who Trusts in the Lord. I think that captures what you find in the psalm, so let's just sample it for a moment. Look at verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in Him I will trust. Again, the title is The Security of the One Who Trusts in the Lord, and the temptation is to prove your ultimate trust in God by putting yourself in a situation of no return. Now look at verse 9. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Or in verse 13, here's another situation. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent, you shall trample underfoot. Well, who are these promises given to? Next verse. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. So if there's anyone to whom this statement would surely apply, it would have to be the Messiah. Right? I mean, because he has set his love upon me. Well, who loves the Son more than the Father? So the Psalm itself may not be messianic, But the Messiah certainly fits the description of receiving the Father's love. And so here then are all of these assurances ministered by God to those people whom He loves. So cast yourself down because the Scripture says these things, including the fact that He'll give His angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways, and in their hands they'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, our Lord's response is initially difficult to understand. When he said, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, it does sound a little bit strange to us. But do we understand that what the Lord seems to be suggesting is that there is a kind of faith. Now, you ready for this one? There is a kind of faith that actually tests God. I mean, the whole issue here is trust, right? Jesus professed to be trusting God, to be trusting the words that proceeded from his mouth, trusting that to the uttermost. I mean, after 40 days of fasting, man still does not live by bread alone. Even in that emergency, even when life is threatened, but by every word, 
that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the Lord was waiting for new instructions from God because His current instructions were to fast in the wilderness. Well, now the temptation is, all right, prove your profession of trust to the ultimate. And our Lord's answer is, well, that kind of trust tempts God. In other words, there is a faith that absolutely depends on God and His Word, but then there is a kind of faith, a kind of trust, that actually fails the test because it turns the tables on God. And we need to understand how this happens because we don't want to do this ourselves, and yet we do want to trust in the Lord. And we want to be prepared to do that, if necessary, to the ultimate end. So how does trust come to border on something inappropriate? Well, let's go back to the passage that the Lord quotes from, and this will be the second Old Testament reference we need to look at more closely. He said, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, and that is written in Deuteronomy 6. So turn there if you will. Deuteronomy 6, and I want to begin reading from verse 14. It says, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. The Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest, if you were to follow these deities, the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted Him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. Now I've just read for you the verses before and after the quotation. So basically you can see that what it says in verse 16 is not related to any particular incident uh, within the, the passage but it's actually referring back to another incident, right? See that? Uh, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted Him in Massa. So what we need to do now is go looking for this incident. And it's found in the third Old Testament passage I want to give you. It's recorded in Exodus 17. So turn there, if you will. I want to read the seven verses that record how Israel tested the Lord God, so that later on in Deuteronomy 6, which is 40 years later, they were told, don't ever do that again. And then Jesus quotes it uh, in the wilderness when he said, it is written, don't do that. Right? Israel did it. Don't you do that. Okay. What did they do? Exodus 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin. And note this according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? And note this, Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you've brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord 
said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also, take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord by saying, or when they said this, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, they tempted the Lord by raising that question, is the Lord among us or not? Now let's just try to sort through what we got here. And I want to do that with three observations. Number one, these people came into this circumstance, verse 1, according to what? According to the command of the Lord. They were there specifically by the Lord's appointment. He deliberately led them into a position where there was no water. Number one. Number two, they had experienced this kind of leading just before this particular episode. If you glance back at the previous chapter, we are told that when they went into the wilderness of sin, there was no food. And in that situation, when they complained, the Lord provided manna and quail for them to eat. Well, that's the circumstance God refers to 40 years later in Deuteronomy 8 when he says, you know, I allowed you to hunger so that you will learn the principle that Jesus is going to quote in his first temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, now that God has led them into a similar situation with no water, what would have been the right thing for them to do based upon the previous experience when God provided for them? I mean, if they learned anything, what would have been the right thing for these people to do now? Well, what they did do, follow this, what they did do is tempting the Lord. That's what it's called. And they evidently did it in a way that is similar to Jesus throwing himself off the temple. In other words, there must be some parallel between what they did and what Satan is suggesting that Jesus do. Well, how did they tempt the Lord? I called your attention to it as we were reading the story. In verse 7, the bottom line is that they tempted the Lord when they questioned whether He was present. And in verse 2, they tempted the Lord when they said to Moses, you give us water, because Moses responded by saying, well, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord in that way? So put those two things together, verses 2 and 7, where it specifically says that they tempted the Lord. And it appears to mean that those people questioned whether God was truly present with them unless another miracle was performed on demand. That's observation number three. In other words, you know, Moses, you give us water. Well, there was no water, right? Anybody could see that. Moses isn't hiding a 24-bottle pack of water from coals in his tent, right? So if this man is going to give them water, obviously they're going to need another miracle. 
Just like the manna and the quail in the wilderness of sin. So Moses, hey, you did that for us. Do it again. I mean, is God here or not? They're demanding miraculous intervention as the proof that God was present with them. Now, that is a very close parallel to what's being suggested to Jesus as a temptation. Jesus, you are the loved Son of God. You claim complete dependence on God. So throw yourself from the temple, and by doing that, you're demanding a miraculous demonstration of God's care for you. Now, you're not demanding it verbally as they did in the wilderness, but you're demanding it by your action. I mean, if God is really present with you, since you are the Son of God after all, right, throw yourself down and God will intervene. Just, just take a step right off the pinnacle and demand that God protect you. Can you see the parallel? In both cases, the issue is you say you're dependent on God. You say that God is with you. All right, you're the Son of God. You're loved by the Father. All right, let's have God perform a little miracle for us and prove it. Now, I want to move into contemporary application. Do you realize that this is a temptation of people who are concerned about falling into the trap of pragmatism and taking things into their own hands? In other words... It's a temptation for people who are very serious about their faith in God. They're concerned that they not fail the test of their faith. I mean, they have professed, where He leads me, I will follow. And as the missionaries like to say, and what He feeds me, I will swallow. Right? They're very intent. They mean that. Because they, they want to live this way. Whatever it is, Lord, I'm in. Right? Total dependence on the Lord. All right. How do you seduce people like that into taking a false step when they keep demonstrating by their life that they will not disobey God for the sake of pragmatism? They will not take things into their own hands outside the direct command and provision of the Lord. How do you seduce people like that? For example, there are believers who need some of life's necessities. Uh, there are believers who are preparing for life in full-time ministry. There are believers who need to provide for their families. Well, they've been waiting a long time for the Lord to open the door to some work opportunity. Well, they've been on deputation to be a missionary for years and the support isn't completely raised. Or they're looking for a mate and no relationship has developed. Or they would like to go on a mission trip and the question is, are they really prepared to trust the Lord for all of those things? Well, how far should they go with their faith? For example, the couple called to missions. They've been on deputation for two years. So the support hasn't come in. They're still at 50%. Well, maybe they should just book their tickets and go. Trust the Lord for the rest. 
Here's a family that can't pay their bills, yet the main breadwinner is working far too many hours. Well, maybe he should just quit and trust the Lord to take care of them until the right job comes along that pays better. They can get ahead. And they're getting further and further behind with their payments. Now, something has to be done. God has to be put to the test here. Here's a church. They're interested in a young man for pastoral ministry. Uh, several older, wiser counselors have warned him he's not ready for that church and maybe he should just exercise his faith. Believe that it's all going to work out even though that church has fired the last six pastors after 18 months apiece. Here's a young person with a large hex debt. She had to borrow money the last two years just to keep it from going backwards. But maybe the Lord still wants her to go on a mission trip for six months to an orphanage in Sudan and show her faith by trusting Him in this way. I mean, God will make the payment somehow. Or I'm dating a person I don't get along with really well, but maybe after we get married, it's all going to work out. God will make it happen. These are live situations, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but these are the kinds of things that the people of God constantly wonder about because to back away seems to lack faith. I mean, I can't say it would be wrong for me to quit. You know, I've got these invoices to pay and the job I have now, well, it's not going to pay it anytime soon. Or you know, I can't say I'm not going to go on the mission field until I have every single bit of my support because that seems like I'm walking by sight rather than by faith. Or if I wait until my school bill was all paid up until I took a missions trip, I'd never go. I mean, surely God wants me to step out in faith and serve Him. And if I'm just going to wait until the perfect person comes along, well, that might never happen. You know, I mean, God's got to be somewhere in this equation. I've got to give Him room to work a miracle. I need to lean on Him, not on my own understanding. In other words, in all of these examples, the person who is cautious sounds faithless. And I'm sure that all over this room there are people who can identify with this exact kind of dilemma. In fact, I would think that all true Christians have faced things like this at some point in their Christian walk with God. Now, let me tell you where it really gets tough. See, there are Bible verses that seem to support your walking right off the edge of the earth. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham was willing to raise the knife and was getting ready to kill his only child. Israel didn't see the Red Sea part until they walked right down and put their feet in the water. Gideon went to battle with just 300 men. The widow had to make Elijah a little cake first with all of the flour and oil that she had. You know, I mean, the widow did it. So maybe the Lord wants me to dump my entire savings account into the offering plate. That'll show my faith. Of course, I got $16,000 in credit card bills, but maybe that's the way God wants me to show my faith. That's what the widow had to do, right? She had to give it all to Elijah before she knew the outcome. Maybe that's why my bank account is empty. It's like a widow's jar of oil. It never fills up. I never made the cake first. 
The Lord said, all things are possible to him who believes. Paul wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, isn't it true that those are the very kinds of passages that come to mind when you're facing a very serious question like that? So, how do you sort through all of that? I want to suggest to you a biblical approach by asking the most critical question of all. You're, you're contemplating doing something that most people would say is foolishness, not faith. All right, how would you know the difference? Let's have a look. Number one, has God actually commanded you to do this thing? You remember how Israel ended up in Rephidim where there was no water? How did they get there? The Lord commanded them to go there. So I want to remind you that Abraham did go out not knowing where he was going. He did raise the knife to slay his son Isaac, but he did it by the God's command. And he's the only man God ever asked to do that. So has God actually commanded you in Scripture to take the step you're thinking of taking? Now, in some cases, there is Scripture that commands Christians to do certain things that actually look as if it's going to be a disaster. So that has to be the first question. Do you have Bible for that, or is this just subjective impressions? You've got to differentiate between those two things. And then number two, is your circumstance such that you simply have no other options? You, you really are in a situation where in all good conscience, you don't find any other direction that you can go. For example, you need to be able to provide for your family, but your employer is now demanding that you work every Lord's Day. Now, let me be clear in saying that the New Testament does not label the Lord's Day as a Sabbath on which we are forbidden to do any kind of work. If the New Testament did command that, then we'd be in an area where we cannot violate the Lord's command. But the Scripture doesn't uh, do that, but it does differentiate this day from every other day of the week. And historically, Christians have kept it separate because they felt that that was in keeping with the spirit of Scripture and the spirit of the day. So here's a man. He's saying, you know what? I'm in real trouble. Now my boss says, I've got to make up my mind within a week. They want me to start working on the Lord's Day every week or turn in my resignation. Now, I don't have a Bible verse that forbids me from doing that. But I just feel in all good conscience before God, I don't have any options here. I need to be in the Lord's house with my family. I cannot forsake the assembling of myself with God's people. That's not good for my soul. That's not seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's the way a godly man is thinking. So are you in a circumstance like that? In other words, the bottom line on these two questions I'm suggesting to you, number one, has God commanded you to do this? And number two, are you in a situation where even though you don't have a clear command from God, you would violate your clear conscience before God. You'd violate what you fear is the spirit of Scripture. The principle here on both of these questions is whether or not the circumstance is of God's making 
and not your own. You're in this situation not because you threw yourself off the temple, but because you were walking in the light, you were obeying the commands of God, you were seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness as your priority, you were doing your very best to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and yet you ended up in this circumstance. You ended up at Rephidim. But that wasn't your choice. That was God's choice. God led you there. Listen, nobody in his right mind would lead his family, let alone two million people, out into a desert where there's no water and have them set up camp. But if God does that, well, now that's a different matter. And if God burns down your house, or God allows your family to be in a car accident where now you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in bills you cannot pay, you've lost your job, if if God does something that puts you in a circumstance where it's literally all over Red Rover, right? In other words, it looks like you're out there in midair with absolutely nothing under you to hold you up, then my friend, it was God who threw you off the pinnacle of the temple. And in that circumstance, you can be sure that He will give His angels charge concerning you and bear you up so that you don't dash your foot against a stone. He will care for you. But don't tempt God by taking your faith into your own hands like that. Hudson Taylor recounted later in life that he learned a real lesson about this when it came to wearing a life vest in a storm. When he first left for the mission field, they were caught in a terrific storm in the English Channel and he refused to put on a life vest for fear that it would show that he had a lack of faith. Years later, he looked back and he said, you know what, today I'd put on a life vest. Well, when you're caught in a storm, if you're in some difficulty by God's appointment and it's not of your own making, then you're very definitely there by God's command. All right, now Psalm 91 kicks in. I may have told the story before of a very young pastor in London who was there by the Lord's appointment for a little over one year, 1854, when the capital was gripped with a cholera epidemic. On some weeks, there are several thousand fatalities per week in the city. He's losing people from his own congregation every week. On one Sunday alone, three people go out into eternity. His week is filled with officiating at funerals, and it just fills with anxiety. You know, the guy's only 20 years old. He's so filled with anxiety, he's overworked, that he falls into depression. Well, he's walking up the road, coming back from a funeral. He walks by a shop, has a large sign in the window that catches his attention. It's the words from Psalm 91, just preceding what Satan quoted. There shall no plague Come near your dwelling. And it gave him heart. That was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He ended up in London because he followed the direction of the Lord. And in that circumstance, he was put in that dire position. And it was God's doing. And he was right not to exercise what we would call common sense and, and get out of there. Move far away. When we were talking about renovating this building 
our building committee wrestled with the question of when to begin construction. You know, we didn't, we didn't want to go into debt because our congregation was small, but just felt as if it would take so many years to raise the funds that we needed. And although we wanted to, or some of us wanted to start the work before we had the money, they wanted to borrow what we needed. The building committee felt that, you know, that just isn't wise. And that's when I remembered what an old pastor once said to me, there is a fine line between faith and foolishness. If you have it all in the bank, then you're probably not exercising enough faith. But on the other hand, there's a point at which it would be foolish to subjectively start ripping out walls with no money in the bank at all. And so the leadership prayed and others prayed and we saw at the Lord's mind about the timing and finally we took a step of faith by starting the renovations even though we did not have all the money that we needed and yet we believed that we weren't painting God into a corner where He had to do something miraculous for us and we just go under. In other words, we left enough room for God to work I don't think it was a foolish step when we started renovating. Another church, not far from us, did the exact opposite. They took what they called a leap of faith. They threw themselves off the pinnacle of the temple. They borrowed $6 million. They upgraded their entire facility, state-of-the-art, huge building. But then they couldn't make the payments. And the pastor resigned, and the church struggled ever since. Faith or foolishness? Now, all I'm saying here is that it does take a great deal of very careful, scriptural, prayerful consideration when you make those kinds of decisions. And I hope I haven't given you the impression with the examples I've given that you know missionaries shouldn't go to the field unless they have every last cent of support. In fact, you know, Hudson Taylor did run the China Inland Mission in such a way that people typically went to the field without any promised support, let alone full support. And of course, we know that George Mueller fed thousands of orphans by prayer alone. So there are exceptions to what the Lord generally teaches about stewardship and saving and hard work and so on. There are exceptions to these things for exceptional men and women of God. But you don't want to go out not knowing where you're going unless you are compelled by God Himself to go. And you know, the day was going to come in the life of Christ Himself when He would go back to that temple and literally put His life entirely in the hands of God. You know, the disciples actually tried to stop Him from going. It just made no sense. But he went that next time knowing that it was under the direction of God. And then the day came, having done that, when on the cross he bowed his head and said, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, the day did come when in effect he allowed himself to be hurled from the pinnacle of the temple, body and spirit, and he sunk down out of sight bearing the sin of the world and believing that doing that was within the will of God and that He would be raised miraculously again by God the Father. But there's a great deal of difference between His being at the temple on this occasion with the devil whispering in His ear 
being at the temple three years later and then at the cross. And so for you and me, there will be those times when God does lead you inexplicably into a dead end and you'll find yourself in a circumstance where unless He does something unusual, you're going under. But take heart. Because the situation was not of your making. It was God's providence. He pushed you from that pinnacle. On the other hand, you may find yourself tempted. And this may happen to someone this week. But there will be times when it may occur to you that you're being too cautious, too faithless, or too pragmatic. And maybe you should do something completely out of the ordinary. That even your spiritual leaders and counselors are throwing up yellow flags about. In such cases, my friends, be careful, be very, very careful not to tempt God by demanding that He rescue you after you've just taken a precipitous step. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we thank You so much for the faith that you gifted us so that we might be your children saved by your grace. We thank you for giving us saving faith and now sanctifying faith that helps us walk every day in light of your word. But Father, help us not to take advantage of this gift and tempt you in any way and demand that you do miracles on our behalf. But help us to live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And in our obedience to you, may we walk a life of faith. We thank you, Father, for what you've already done for us and the growth we've seen in in our church, in our lives. Help us to move forward, Father, trusting you for every step. And we love you and we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly life. In Jesus' name, amen.